Welcome to Max and Murphy here on WBAI Radio. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm here solo this week with our good friend Jarrett Murphy of City Limits, taking some well-deserved time off. That will also be the case next week, and then I'll be gone after that. So a little bit of mix and match here in the summer weeks as we bring you the Max and Murphy show here discussing New York and New York State politics. So for today's show, we will be talking with three great guests through the course of the rest of this hour. I'm excited about today's program. In just a few minutes, I'll be joined by State Senator Julia Salazar, who represents a big swath of Brooklyn in the State Senate. She was elected to the seat just a couple of years ago and had, is finishing up her first term. She just won her Democratic primary to what looks like uh, will mean be reelected to the State Senate. And then we will also at the same time be joined by likely new state Senator Jabari Brisport, who has uh, prevailed in a crowded open primary also in Brooklyn to represent the 25th state Senate district. And we'll talk to state Senator Salazar and likely uh, next Senator Jabari Brisport at the same time. In part, I invited them to join me together because they both were members of this ascendant New York City branch of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, they both had the backing of the New York City DSA in their elections. And uh, I want to talk to them about what's happening with that movement on the far left of the Democratic Party. They are both Democrats uh, and and hear their agendas for how to help New Yorkers, help New York City, help New York State move forward and out of the crises that we are facing here. And the crises are many. So I'll be joined soon, very soon, by State Senator Julia Salazar and likely new State Senator Jabari Brisport to talk about what they want to see happen uh, even before Mr. Brisport takes office in January uh, to, to hear what they want to see happen in the near future, uh, the middle term and the long term in New York. So we'll talk with them soon. Later in the show, uh, I'm looking forward to be joined by my friend Harry Siegel who is a longtime Daily News columnist. He's an editor at the Daily Beast, and he's co-host of the FAQ NYC podcast, also with our friend, Dr. Christina Green. So I'll be joined by Harry Siegel later in the show. He will talk about some of his recent Daily News columns about the void of leadership in New York City. Uh, Harry has been writing about how Mayor Bill de Blasio has not been putting forward the connection plans and vision for New York City that are needed in this moment, among other things. And so Harry Siegel of the Daily News, Daily Beast, and FAQ NYC podcast will join me later in the show. You are coming back for Harry. That'll be around 5.35 p.m. But of course, you shouldn't go anywhere because I will be joined momentarily by State Senator Salazar and likely State Senator Brisport. So what we're going to talk about with all three guests today, though, is the crises that New York City and New York State are facing. And as I said, they are many. We are still dealing with a pandemic. We're, sti we're still dealing with a public health crisis. And what folks sometimes are missing right now is a lot of the conversation has shifted to reopening of the economy, the unemployment crisis, reopening of city schools is that we are still dealing with hundreds of people getting infected with COVID-19 every day, testing positive, 
We're also uh, shouldn't take our eyes away from the fact that we have thousands of people who are still recovering from having had the virus, the, the folks fortunate enough to see it through and not succumb to the virus that has taken tens of thousands of New Yorkers. And those uh, people continue to need health care. They continue to need mental health care. There's people who did not have the virus or do not did not have a rough course of it that will need mental health care as well. And that, so that's just one ongoing crisis. We also have the, the economic devastation that the city has uh, is feeling. There continues to be upwards of 20% unemployment across New York City. There are questions around housing and evictions that um, I guess in a moment we'll definitely focus on, both uh, State Senator Salazar and likely next State Senator Jabari Brisport have had a major focus on housing and how to prevent mass evictions when the eviction moratorium does end. And then there are others. I will not continue to go down the list, but if you're listening to this program, you are surely familiar with the fact that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of New Yorkers who are still participating in the city's free food program because otherwise they would go hungry. There are small businesses and large businesses that are going out of business or can't reopen. There is a crisis with the MTA where the transit authority needs to be bailed out again with federal dollars. Otherwise, we could see severe layoffs and reductions in service, just as the New York City economy is trying to come back. There are questions around crime and public safety, of course, as we've talked about on the show in recent weeks. And I mentioned education, where there are serious questions around whether school buildings will indeed reopen for blended learning with some in-person schooling for the city's one million plus students in just a few weeks. And that's been a topic of the day as Mayor Bill de Blasio and the school's chancellor, Richard Carranza, visited a school in Queens to try to look at how the school is preparing for socially distanced reopening, blended learning, kids to be in the classroom every day starting September 10th. And as that was happening today, both the principals union and the teachers union said they don't think schools will be ready for that September reopening and they want in-person schooling pushed back at least a few weeks. So that is going to be a topic to discuss further soon. So let me bring on our first guest today and we are very happy to be joined by State Senator Julia Salazar of Brooklyn and likely next state senator also in Brooklyn, Jabari Brisport. They are two Brooklyn Democrats. They are members, as I said earlier, of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America and their elections over the last few years have been buoyed by that group. For joining me, Senator Salazar and Mr. Brisport, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk with you. How are you? Doing well. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, good to be here. And thank you for joining me and thank you for making it uh, logistically easier by being in the same place together. I appreciate that. Um, so why don't we uh, just start for a moment? Why don't you each just um, give a quick mention to the neighborhoods that you represent and maybe name just one or two things that really seem to be the most pressing for your constituents right now that you're trying to tackle as we're facing all these crises that I was just listing, listing before saying hello to you, we're facing all these urgent needs. Um, what are the neighborhoods that you represent and what are you hearing as the most pressing issues of your constituents? Senator Salazar, why don't you start us off? Sure. I 
represent the 18th district in Brooklyn, which includes uh, all of Bushwick, uh, Williamsburg, and parts of Greenpoint, uh, Cypress Hill, East New York, Brownsville, and Bed-Stuy, um, a district that has been uh, overwhelmingly hit very hard by COVID-19, uh, not just in terms of how many people had contracted the, the virus, um, but but also in terms of the economic impact, uh, it's uh, majority people of color. Uh, there's a large immigrant population, uh, many of whom are undocumented workers. Um, and so naturally, um, a lot of a lot of people have been excluded from the relief that um, the limited relief that's been provided by the federal government and the state. Um, and so a top priority for me right now is trying to fight for an excluded workers fund um, and ensure that that uh, no, no one who lives in our communities is left out. Uh, also, we're seeing rent strikes across the district and, and as well as people who uh, are not necessarily on rent strike, but simply have been unable to pay their rent, both uh, residential tenants and commercial tenants, um, and concerns for the many affordable housing nonprofits that that exist in the district, uh, and, and concerns about how they're going to be able to survive this crisis, uh, which is why I've been prioritizing uh, legislation in the Senate to uh, try to try to get those those rents forgiven and um, secure funds, whether it's from generating revenue at the state level or from the federal government uh, to alleviate the, the, the outcome of that. Thank and, you. Um, yeah, this is uh, Dubaris. I'm, I'm in uh, State Senate District 25, just south of Senator Salazar. Uh, that's uh, for Clinton Hill, Northern parts of Crown Heights and Prostatites, a little bit of Gowanus, Sunset Park, Park Slope, Carroll Gardens, Warm Hill, downtown Brooklyn, um, all of Red Hook. And, you know, very similar issues, um, you know, that, that Senator Salazar is seeing with um, workers being left out, left behind, people worried about housing. Um, very oppressing right now, in addition to uh, the rent strikes or just the fear of a wave of evictions is what's going on with the schools. You know, a lot of parents in the district are very concerned about whether it's safe. Myself as a teacher, I'm, I'm actually going back to teach in the fall and until I take office, you know, I'm concerned about the safety of the, the school environment for not only my students, but, you know, their families if anything happens and they might bring it back to them. Um, so, you know, working, um, you know, with uh, my union, working with other activists to ensure that there is safety before, you know, we, we fully open the schools again. Yeah, so let's stick with that for a second then. Um, Jabari, why don't you continue on that and then back to you, Senator Salazar. Um, what do you make of the current discussion over reopening uh, in-person schooling just before coming on the air, basically? Both the principals' union and the teachers' union uh, both came out to say they think that in-person learning at this point should be delayed from a planned uh, September 10th start until maybe the beginning of October at the earliest. What do you think about that? I mean. It, and, and obviously, you know, if that's keeping in mind a lot of individual safety, uh, that also doesn't necessarily mean there's a real plan in place for the children of essential workers, for example, who, uh, you know, need somewhere to, for their children to be, not to mention, of course, the, the academic side of it. 
Yeah, you know, uh, right now it seems to me as the schools are being held to uh, a double standard versus other entities. I mean, right now they're the only place where we're allowing congregations of hundreds of people inside a building. That's we're not doing that with in the sports, in the arts, and in any other, any other field. Are we saying that's fine? And even restricting it to a half or a third of students. You know, in my my school, there's around 1,400 students and around 100 or so teachers and faculty. So even at a third capacity, we're looking at over 500 people inside the building, which is um which is unsafe at this point. And um, you know, the trigger itself is I think around a 3% testing rate, which we're not far off from. And what would be the most unfortunate for me is if we open them up went through the entire rigmarole of trying to get the blended learning started and then hit the 3% trigger and, and shut everything down again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I would just add that if we are trying to learn some lessons from from uh, the response so far to this crisis, uh, going back to, to March, I personally felt frustrated with the delay in uh, closing school facilities in the first place. Um, and, and felt that it really uh, jeopardized the, the health and safety of, of students and, and faculty. Um, and so I'm very apprehensive about us um, physically reopening schools. Uh, and I'm also really concerned because this is going to, you know, the, I don't think that the child care issue has been addressed. There are a lot of families. Some, some parents, I think, will need to be returning to work or they're essential workers. Um, and so at, at, at once, while it's, I think, necessary for public health for students to uh, be able to do remote learning, um, we need to be making sure that child care is accessible and provided to the families who, who need it uh, and who otherwise sort of rely on public schools for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one thing I'm trying to figure out is if we're, um, you know, needing to prop up more and more child care facilities, you know, we're almost creating a shadow school system that's not quite a shot, you know, not quite a school system. And it's, uh, I'm not quite sure what the, what, what do you think the answer is if, we, if we're not going to reopen in-person schooling and the, you know, the child care network needs to be, greatly expanded um what what's the answer there what 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 are we what are we doing other than only creating i don't know you know a dangerous situation for essential workers and their and their families yeah well for one uh the in in the federal government's cares act uh there was substantial funds given to New York State to address this issue, uh, nearly $70 million in funding from the CARES Act uh, that could be used to make um, some of these child care agencies whole uh, that have, that um, are still owed, owed money um, on their contracts. They, uh, they haven't received those funds, they haven't been allocated yet. Um, so I think that it's really urgent that the governor, um, if ne- you know, if necessary, the legislature act in order to um, to make sure that that childcare is provided um, and and use the funds that were specifically given to the state for this purpose. What do you think, Jabari? In terms of uh, just one more moment on on the schools here. I mean, what 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 do you think the 
let's say that um, in-person learning is delayed here. Um, what do you think schooling needs to look like that was different from what it looked like, you know, at the end of, of the school year when everything went remote so quickly? Um, what does it need to look like? Are there things um, that need to happen that, that weren't in place that now need to be put in place in terms of, you know, perhaps more live streamed instruction where all the students are expected to be online at the same time? Or, you know, are there things that you think, um, you know, are essential to doing that? I mean, the biggest hiccup, I would say, was the lack of communication with parents and families and just the delay and everything going on. I would say if we agreed to, um, you know, completely virtual and a longer delay, it would be give us people an opportunity to reach out to parents, make sure they um, have received the device if they don't have one, making sure they have internet connectivity if they do not have it, um, making sure there's a plan in place. Because really, you know, what we saw was, you know, a very, you know, 12 hours notice, you know, an, an announcement on a Sunday afternoon that there'd be no school on a Monday and leaving everyone scrambling, you know, people within education and also families. And it would give people a chance to communicate and make sure we're all on the same page, which just goes so far in education, just a little communication and making sure, you know, the teachers, the parents and, and the students are on the same page is like 90% of the battle. Hmm. And is there anything in your mind that, would make you feel, um, you know, really comfortable about opening school back up to students? I mean, it sounds like, it sounds like you're pretty, pretty hesitant at this point to, to have that happen in September. Uh, if there were a tried and true and widespread vaccine that were accessible um, and, you know, administered, uh, I feel like that would be the safest group possible. Mm-hmm. So let's go back to, um, you know, some of the things you both mentioned in your, your initial remarks and, and the role, of course, that the state legislature needs to play because uh, Senator Salazar, you're currently a member and, and Jabari, you're going to be. Um, what are what are some of the pieces of legislation that you both either short term or more medium long term um, have at the top of your your list? What are the most essential pieces of, of bills and, and other uh, measures that you think are needed for New York? either immediately or, or for a longer-term recovery? In terms of uh, immediate response, I introduced a bill uh, known as the Emergency Coronavirus Affordable Housing Preservation Act, um, or the bill number is SA-190A, um, that would ensure that anyone who has lost income, not even necessarily their entire income, but who um, can demonstrate any loss of income whatsoever uh, related to the pandemic, um, that their rent or mortgage would be forgiven. Um, and and it would include a fund um, either funded by uh, by several options in, in generating revenue or um, with funds directly from the federal government um, to, to then provide relief um, and make sure that it's a, a closed loop solution. Uh, in, in other words, you know, if, if someone who lives in a small building doesn't pay their rent, as we know, that more than half of the households in, in New York right now are unable to reliably pay rent every month due to uh, the crisis, um, then they would, they would apply for the relief. Um, their monthly cost would be 
forgiven um, and funds would be used to instead provide relief uh, to the property owner, um, to the affordable housing provider, um, uh, whoever is impacted by their inability to pay. Um, and really the, the point of it is, one, to create a closed loop solution um, and stop a potential domino effect uh, from, from people being unable to cover their costs. Um, but also to make sure that we're not dealing with an even greater homelessness crisis than we currently are where uh, some, something around 80,000 New Yorkers are unhoused um, and that not only is uh, just a, a moral crisis, you could argue, but um, it also is a public health risk. Um, so, so really, Housing is, is my biggest focus right now. Um, I also think that long term, uh, we really should should uh, be concerned that so many New Yorkers are unable to uh, feel feel that they're unable to go to the doctor when they're sick, um, to take their children to to the doctor. Um, we really need to find a way to pass the New York Health Act or to ensure truly universal health care in New York State um, in order to to not only um, avoid the impact that we've seen, but particularly to address uh, the, the inequitable impact that, that we've seen um, from the virus where uh, a disproportionately high number of black and brown New Yorkers are or have, have been dying from COVID-19 um, due to inequitable uh, access and, and distribution of, of health care resources. Um, I'll really be putting uh, well, another Senator Salazar bill, but <laughs> the uh, cause eviction bill. Um, just, you know, uh, we want to protect people, even when the pandemic is over, from unjust evictions and being pushed out of their homes, especially in rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods. I mean, I really do see evictions as a tool of gentrification. It's predominantly black and brown people that are the victims of um, evictions, predominantly, you know, particularly black women um, as, as one example. And um, I would also say the New York Health Act, um, you know, more important than ever in the midst of a, of a pandemic, um, ensuring that, you know, every single New York has access to health care without, you know, breaking the bank. So on both um, on both the rent relief and uh, the New York Health Act, you know, obviously uh, these are the types of of policies that you both have run on. You've gotten a lot of strong support, um, you know, sort of from the the ascendant left of the Democratic Party here. Um, but it seems like the the reason that some of these uh, don't move is that they also involve, as Senator Salazar mentioned, raising revenue, which often means raising taxes and that that discussion continues to be, uh, you know, among the top that are being discussed, especially as Governor Cuomo has repeatedly sought federal help to fill the state's budget gap, um, but has has said that uh, he doesn't think it makes sense to raise taxes on higher earners. What's the status of that discussion? Uh, maybe Senator Salazar, you have more insights since you're currently in the in the Democratic conference in the in the state Senate. Um, what's the status of that discussion, and do you see a situation where the state legislature is trying to force the governor's hand on raising revenue? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have 
seen um, much more popular support than previously, both um, among the electorate, um, and I think actually the most recent primary elections could, um, could potentially demonstrate that, uh, but also within the legislature for proposals to tax the ultra-wealthy in order to raise necessary revenue. Um, and, you know, of course, we have to consider the substantial and, and growing state budget deficit, um, but, but also we are seeing the impact of years of austerity budgets at the state level, um, and there is a, a platform of at least a dozen bills that um, that make reasonable proposals for raising revenue, um, a billionaire's wealth tax or mark-to-market tax, which actually is proposed as the funding mechanism for the uh, excluded workers fund, um, a pied-a-terre tax, which uh, came, it has had popular support in the past and came pretty close in 2019 during the budget process. Um, uh, closing the carried interest loophole uh, and um, p- potentially eliminating some of the wasteful subsidies that exist uh, that you know, that you could, you could consider to be corporate welfare, um, as well as a corporate landlord tax that uh, that Assemblyman Epstein and I introduced um, to try to both curb some irresponsible practices in real estate by private equity and hedge funds uh, while also generating uh, substantial revenue. Um, so there, there are a lot of options on the table. There's a rigorous discussion in the legislature about these things um, within the past couple of weeks, both the leader and the assembly speaker um, came out publicly in in support of considering uh, these proposals. Of course, they weren't explicit about which proposals are being considered, but they made it clear that even if we receive uh, generous funds from the federal government, that we we recognize we're just going to need to raise revenue, and, and it's a matter of our state's survival at this point. And so it sounds like you think something, some one or more pieces of the package of revenue raisers are almost certain to happen at some point this year? I feel confident that at, at least at least one of the proposals that's been on the table will, will happen. Um, I definitely don't buy the, the argument that billionaires are going, you know, we have more for what it's worth, we have more billionaires in New York State than any other state, um, and I sort of reject the idea that um, billionaires and, and the wealthy taxpayers are going to flee the state um, if we increase taxes. Uh, there's been fear-mongering about that in the past, and it turned out not to be the case. Um, and so I, I think that that will will at least pass one of these proposals, uh, even though I think it, it would be better for us to pass multiple because they don't actually hit um, the same the same taxpayers in the same way, but actually seek to address uh, different ways in which our tax system is inequitable. Yeah, and, you know, there's also you know there's also a possibility that uh, 
you know, we may reach a veto proof majority after the elections in uh, November, which, you know, I mean, we have a lot more legislators that are amenable to these taxes than the governor is. And if that, you know, if that's the case, we may be able to, you know, and I think the forces hand, but we could uh, probably just, you know, just jump over his hand <laughs> um, in terms of getting some of these, these bills passed. Well, that could certainly be um, an interesting development if it happens, but likely that's that wouldn't be until the, the beginning of, of next year, right? Um, I, I just I wanted to follow up on on this idea of increasing taxes and not being concerned about the idea of sort of um, uh, flight by by the wealthiest New Yorkers. Do you both want um, you know the the billionaires and the highest earners to stay? Sometimes I see you know sort of discussion that happens where. People talk about raising taxes and then, you know, people warn, well, the highest, you know, earners are very mobile and, and, and they'll leave. And some people say, good. Uh, is, is that, I mean, where are you at in that, in that discussion? Do you want the billionaires in New York to stay? I mean, I, I have no reason to think that they should leave the city or the state. Um, I just, I really just want to make sure that they're paying their fair share of taxes um, and also that in our state budget every year, we're not, uh, you know, thoughtlessly just reinstituting tax breaks for people who don't need them while uh, cash poor homeowners are paying even more in property taxes every year um, and, and a lot of working people and the majority of New Yorkers are struggling and, and struggling to pay their tax bill. And truthfully, like, you know, it's, we believe that wealth should be distributed more equitably, you know, and it is, it's hoarded wealth at this point. Um, it's wealth that is generated, um, you know, by New Yorkers and, you know, should you know, go out to New Yorkers as well. So in our final minute here, I just wanted to um, follow up, uh, especially with you, Jabari, on something you mentioned before that, that connects to a larger uh, conversation, um, you know, that is at times has taken an unfortunate uh, turn. It's, it's an important conversation, but, you know, sometimes it's, it's gotten a little personal. But you mentioned, you know, um, uh, gentrification and evictions, um, and, and at times the, the DSA movement that you are both a part of has has been called, including by city council member Lori Cumbo and, and others, a, a vehicle of the of the sort of gentrification agenda. And I wanted to know, you know, at this point, as you're now very likely taking office, um, you know, how are you how are you thinking about that conversation and this movement that just elected you and previously elected Senator Salazar and also had some other wins uh, in these in this year's primaries. Um, how do you how do you respond to some of the criticism that's coming your way that this movement, um, you know, has elected officials of color as sort of Trojan horses for a, a white agenda? Yeah, you know, I, I stand by my belief that gentrification is primarily caused by raising rents to the point where working class black and brown people can't stay in their homes or by evicting working class black and brown people. And that the two gentrifiers of these neighborhoods are corporate landlords, real estate developers, and people that, you know, like them that donate to campaigns like Lori Cumbo's. Um, the people that supported my campaign um, support better rent control, good cause eviction, keeping people in the homes they grew up in, and keeping communities intact. Uh, I couldn't think, I couldn't think of a group further from gentrifiers than the DSA. Mm. Yeah, I, I certainly would agree with that. Um, every policy 
that we support and have supported, um, including the the very strong support from from DSA for the new rent laws that were passed in 2019, um, is actually dedicated to uh, trying to prevent gentrification and the harmful impacts of, of gentrification that's already happened in the city. Um, and and I think that when uh, political opponents of the DSA try to paint uh, this movement that is actually very diverse, um, our entire slate of candidates are black and brown um, in, in the, the state elections this year in the state primaries. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that when they try to make this accusation, it's because they they know that people are reasonably sensitive about gentrification. Um, but the the problem is that it, the, there isn't a, any factual basis for the claim that DSA is somehow responsible for gentrification or that uh, the success of our um, of our electoral work and policy work is going to drive gentrification somehow because, in fact, the opposite is true. Hmm. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. There's a lot more, obviously, to discuss on that and so much more of what we, we hit on. But I'm glad we had a, a chance to to catch up on some of the things that you're working on and thinking about. Uh, State Senator Julia Salazar, thank you for the time. And uh, likely State Senator Jabari Brisport, uh, congratulations on your primary win and, and uh, best of luck to both of you moving forward. Thank you, Ben. So that was a conversation with uh, a couple of Brooklyn, uh, either state senator or soon to be state senator, uh, Julia Salazar and Jabari Brisport, with some of their policy priorities and also uh, some of the discussion there at the end about sort of the, the politics of the moment in Brooklyn, the politics of the moment in New York City and New York State, uh, some discussion around some of the real um, uh, intense conversation that's been happening among black elected officials, uh, especially in Brooklyn, but other parts of the city as well. And, uh, and some of the more ascendant left wing of the party where, um, Senator Salazar, Jabari Brisport, uh, other, other elected officials and, um, candidates have been successful in the recent elections. You have a DSA back slate of candidates from, uh, the state assembly and Brisport in the state Senate that were successful. You know, the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, New York City branch has has endorsed a small number of candidates in different elections um, and been very successful in recent years and and is perhaps, uh, you know, growing and looking to grow further. And at times allying with organizations that are a bit larger, uh, like the Working Families Party and a variety of other groups like uh, Sunrise and Make the Road Action and many other sort of left-wing groups, progressive groups um, that are really trying to change New York City and state politics. And, you know, the primaries that just occurred are were a very interesting test of some of this. Now, the DSA did also back one congressional candidate, Sam Elise Lopez, in the 15th Congressional District, and that did not go their way. That was a crowd. Uh, 
by uh, city council member Richie Torres up in the Bronx. And so that was one race that the DSA did not prevail in. But their whole state legislative slate of five candidates did prevail. And that included uh, the two guests that we just had and a few state assembly candidates. 